now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. the money and how did you get the woman? What do you think? There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Oh, I was going to say, speaking of New Orleans setting a panic in the streets, uh, 1950, uh, the charcuterie board at uh, the Café Orleans in Disneyland. I knew this was going to be Disneyland. Bon meme. Bon meme, friends. It's it's good. Let the good... T- how do you say that? Lasse bon temps brule? I don't know how, are you, I don't know how you would say that. How, how do you say let the good times roll? Todd had to take French. They didn't teach me that one. Maybe that's not... <laughs> thing outside of new orleans maybe that's actually the only thing at disneyland i don't know but anyway i miss disneyland bro welcome to what's in the basket i'm amelia and i'm joined by candace hello and tiff who has made her way through the snowdrift to be back with us hello she dug back out with her little mole claws uh i think the audience can expect like a certain level of mania to just creep into our episodes from this point onwards i suspect our audience is probably also manic because the entire fucking world is quarantined i think we've all just kind of lost it a little bit please put in from muppets treasure island the cabin fever song (laughs) at this juncture um specifically the we're flipping our bandanas part of the song i got cabin fever i've got the I got the cabin fever, it's driving me insane. We got cabin fever, we're flipping our bandanas. Been stuck at sea so long that we have simply gone bananas. So uh, this week we have a pandemic noir, essentially which is not a genre I knew existed, but it does. Uh, We have a movie called Panic in the Streets from 1950, which is a bit of a misnomer because no one actually finds out about it in the general public. There's no Panic in the Streets to speak of. Yeah, keep it on the down low, which is, I guess, what everyone was trying to do with this pandemic initially, probably to the point of keeping on the two down low. So, yeah, Panic in the Streets from 1950. It's technically a film noir as directed by Ilya Kazan. It starts off with the card game. Jack Palance is there in all of his creepy glory. And there, there's a few guys there. One guy's quite sick and he's come in from a boat. Can't play no more. Sit down. I'm sick. What's the matter with you? You can't quit now. Gotta quit. Cold. Cold, I'm sick. You wasn't too sick to walk off the boat and win 190 bucks the first night you were in the country. And he loses the cards, he tries to run off, they chase after him, kill him with no mercy, 
and uh, take his money. And it's like from that point on, they discover that this man had some kind of, they call it a pneumonic plague, which is apparently a cousin of the bubonic plague, which they make a very big deal about in the movie. In November of 1924 in Los Angeles, California, a woman died of what was thought to be pneumonia. 32 people had had contact with her. And within four days before the disease could be correctly diagnosed and contained, 26 of them had died. And they died suddenly, violently, and horribly. The disease was finally found to be pneumonic plague. Pneumonic plague is the pulmonary form of bubonic, the black death of the Middle Ages. So from there, we're introduced to our protagonist, who is played by Richard Widmark. He, he works for the um, the government to some degree, because his name's Lieutenant Commander. But he's a doctor, but he's also like a commissioned corporal from the U.S. Public Health Service. In the wiki, it says, Reed is enjoying a rare day off with his wife, Nancy, and their son, Tommy, but decides to inspect the body, which is the body of the man that they find. The thing I want to point out that is craziest about this scene is that it opens with Richard Widmark and his son painting a letterbox or whatever and his son seemingly is friends with a 35 year old man I don't know where he comes from he's just there yeah he just pulls up in his car yeah in his like painting overalls and like that's like a normal thing like he's just best friends with this old guy he directly addresses this little boy who I estimate is like five years old without saying a single word to Richard Widmark and we quickly realize that Richard Widmark has never met this man who is apparently pretty familiar with his kid, uh, which is troubling, to say the least. You better take it easy now. You don't want to get paint all over those pants. Hiya, Hello. Tommy. Hi, Mr. Redfield. Teaching your pop how to paint? Sure. Hello, Doctor. How are you? Great boy you have there. Thank you, thank you. See you Saturday, Mr. Redfield. Sure, sure, anytime you like. When things get dull, just drop right on over here. Bye. Who's that? Mr. Redfield. He's a painter. Yeah, so I gathered. He lives in the big house down on the corner. You ought to see it, Pop. It's full of all kinds of stuff. And he has electric trains and everything. Must be great. Hey, you know what I think's the matter with this stuff? What? It's too thick. Nah. It's too thick. Look at it. I'm going to thin it. And the turpentine. Huh. Electric trains. Yes. So he goes down to inspect the body and he diagnoses it as the pneumonic plague and he insists that they need to find everybody that this man could have been in contact with to try and curb the outbreak. And he insists that everybody who comes into contact with the body, everybody who's going to be searching around for miscreants should be inoculated. Um, so it's a very pro-vaccination film. But they try and keep this all on the down low to not spread panic through the streets. He teams up with the police captain, um, who's played by Paul Douglas, who we all know that they all have very non-New Orleans accents for them to be setting this entire movie in New Orleans. Like, so much of it rests on the fact that it's set there, and just none of them have the accent. It's very weird to me. Uh, but I guess that was just how they did things back then. Okay, so this is the part where, like, they bring in people to the police station and one of them is Zero Mostel, and his character is quite funny, but he has been in contact with Jack Palance and his gang, who have all been in contact with the sick man, and they're uh, all worried about the police clamping down on their activities, and so they're planning to skip town. No, Fitch, there's one thing I don't like. You know what it is? Sure, Blackie, sure. Somebody trying to put something over on you. I never liked it. 
You find Dory. I want to see him. No, Blackie, no. Let's get out of town. I'm scared, I tell you. They'll pick me up again. Stop with that! They picked you up once. They ain't going to do it again. Blackie, I don't know where Poldy went. I don't know where to look for him. I'm going to get out of town. Look. I just told you I don't like nobody putting anything over on me. While this is happening, Richard Widmer goes down to the port and is like, has anyone seen this man? Um, he finds the boat that the man came in on and he's quarantines the crew and much to their chagrin. I just, I, I want to interject and say that the scene where Richard Widmark goes down to the port and he goes to the like the hiring hall for sailors, he comes in in this trench coat and tells them that he will give $50 to anyone with information about this guy. And it's like, this is an excellent way to get yourself fucking shanked by a sailor. You go in in this trench coat that presumably is full of $50 bills in the year 1950. You're surrounded by, like, broke-ass sailors, and you're just like, what's up, guys? Yeah, the one, the one guy's like, man, you're flashing around a lot of cash to be in a place like this. Anybody that can tell me anything at all, how about it? I'll see. I've never seen you, Mac. You got the dough on you, Johnny? Can you tell me anything? I can tell you're taking a terrific chance flashing that kind of thaw around this mob. Shipping is tough. You can say that again. <laughs> Richard Widmark has no sense of self-preservation. He wants to catch the plague. Well, they keep calling it plague, which is... That's not how you say that word. How do you say what? Plague. Plague? Plague. Plague. Plague? It's not plague. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. All right. I couldn't... Your accent oh, threw like me off. And I was okay. like, I thought, I thought you were saying plague, like P... And I was like, Amelia, that's how the word plague is pronounced. But in relation, you were saying plague. Okay. All right. Never mind. I, I was like, that, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> I was like, Amelia, how have you been pronouncing plague this whole time? <laughs> plague you. The plague. <laughs> it's the plague. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. When he goes to quarantine the boat... There is a very weird interlude where suddenly he can just speak Chinese <laughs> and <laughs> can talk to the chef and the cabin boy on this vessel who are Chinese. And it's just like no one's going to address the fact that Richard Widmark can speak Chinese. I'm going to be generous here and say that since Richard Widmark is uh, a lieutenant or whatever in the military, perhaps the Widmark character was supposed to have been stationed in China during the war. And then they just cut whatever line of dialogue informed us of this fact. <laughs> <laughs> this is also the part where um, they're talking to the man, the cabin boy, and he's like, yeah, the man is smuggled on board and he wanted shish kebab. And Paul Douglas is like, what the fuck? Yes, I'm sure. And if I knew what shish kebab was, maybe we'd be on the trail or something. It's lamb on a skewer. Some of the Greek and Armenian restaurants around town serve it. To tell you the truth, I'm rather fond of it myself. Paul Douglas is what, like, what the fuck is a shish kebab? <laughs> and he's like, off cider is like, oh, it's skewered lamb, you know? And personally, I'm and quite then fond of it. He expresses how much he likes it. <laughs> but yeah, then from then on, they're just like, well, shish kebab, that can only mean one thing Greek restaurants. So they, they canvass the city's Greek restaurants, which you gotta think, how many Greek restaurants are there in New Orleans? Well, I can't damper this with facts, but New Orleans is one of the most, uh, at the time at least, was one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the world. So yeah, I know, but that's what I'm saying. It's like there's gotta be, it's gotta be a lot. Oh, I think then like, is there like three? How long is it gonna take Richard Woodmark to find this guy? I was like, this could take Richard Woodmark quite some time. No, I'm saying there's there would be a lot. You know, it doesn't seem like the best plan. I mean, maybe finding out where they got the shish kebab from might have been a like more uh, effective way. Richard Woodmark just really wanted to try some shish kebab 
and he wasn't going to be able to do that <laughs> by what going down to the you know the the county and and looking through fingerprint records. That's not going to happen. There's no shish kebab there. Jack Palance, whose character's name is Blackie and is said quite a lot as Blackie, and Zero Mostel are uh, getting quite desperate to get away from the police dragnet, which is getting you know tighter and tighter and tighter. And is is this the point you'd like to mention the little tidbit that you kept from us while we were watching, Candace? There's a man who who sells newspapers who is, is a little person. It's Pat Walsh, who was also the lead flying monkey in The Wizard of Oz. And he's kind of Blackie's uh, lookout on the street. He keeps track of the comings and goings of his associates, you know, for, I'm guessing, like, blackmail purposes and the sheer difficulty of running a syndicate when nobody has cell phones. If you see him, let me know. Because you can't, you can't page him. You said a little pager. Zero Marcel's got a little pager that just says, like, play grats. Um... Well, I, yeah, I, did, I didn't realize that. Uh, I didn't realize that Jack Palance was quite so tall. What is he like, six three? Yeah, he looks like Mac tonight. He looks like Lurch. And then there's another associate of theirs named Poldy who's been missing, right? And then Poldy reappears, and Palance is like, "What's up with this shit?" And then Poldy, who's their associate, is sick. He's quite sick at this point. Another person has died from the illness, who is the wife of a. Greek restaurant proprietor uh, named Rita, she's died. And that, and that her husband had declined to, to tell uh, Widmark, you know what I mean? And then that's why she's dead. Information. Because he lied to Widmark. Yeah, because he ain't no snitch, mm-hmm. you know? If that, you know, if anything, Greeks, they'll not snitch. That's so true. <laughs> Well-known so Greek true. national characteristic. They'll stay as stuffed as a Dalmati. Anyway, <laughs> um, so the next part is that the reporter who... I believe uh, Widmark had already had words with before at the beginning of the movie uh, is threatening to break the story about there being a pandemic, a possible pandemic. But then Paul Douglas is like, don't even worry about it. And like, just throws the reporter in jail. You don't know. And because you don't know, you don't want anybody else to know. Well, there's a chance you we can bet contain. there is. And don't think for a minute that everybody in this town isn't going to get it. Oh, drop it. If your editor's got the story, let him go ahead and print it. Well, my editor doesn't have it, but he's going to get it. Oh, he doesn't have it, eh? What do you know? Take it. A pleasure. Oh, wait a minute, Warren. What are you talking about? He speaks to to no one. What's the charge, Warren? Loitering, public nuisance, anything you like. You're crazy. I'll have your badge. It's getting stuck. You know I can do it. You'll be walking a beat. No! Which is, I think, unconstitutional. To just throw a reporter in prison so he doesn't break a story. But that leads to uh, Widmark being a bit depressed and going home. And this is when his wife says, oh, well, let's just have another baby and then everything will be good. Yeah, there's a very long, strange, like, personal life interlude that's just sort of hammered in there. And it's such a waste of Barbara Belgetti's. Like, that could be anybody. Why pull her off of any of the other projects she could be affiliated with? You know, like, fucking shit up on on Broadway at the time. To have, like, 12 lines, thanklessly, in this stupid movie. Yeah. I mean, there was a serious lack of women in this film. I think the only one that really has, I guess, a role that makes an impression is Zero Mostel's wife, who is quite belligerent and fucking hates Jack Palance and hates Zero Mostel and is like, man, men are so fucking stupid. Excuse you, there's also Poldy's mother, who reminds me of Father Karras' mother from The Exorcist. Like, it's kind of that same, <laughs> oh, Dean, you 
why you do this to me? Demi, Demi, why you do this to me? Which, by the way, is what is what my grandmother has turned into because of the whole pandemic. Uh, she's she started uh, watching Mass online on YouTube every single day and praying oh my God. the rosary, which she hasn't done <laughs> since World War Two. So that's not a good sign. <laughs> No, just just it's as not. an aside for any you know fellow uh, Catholics quarantined in a suburban bunker with their grandmothers. That's that's the situation going on over here. I thought Easter was cancelled this year. Jesus just not coming back. Easter's also cancelled because that means Jesus doesn't get crucified either. So it's kind of a win-win. I mean, not for the Romans, if you think about it. <sighs> well, I mean, you're the one who's struggling right now, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hope I'm dead by the end of the week because <laughs> this sucks. At least I don't have to worry about being pet on a ventilator. Because of the American hospital system, I don't have to worry about fighting for one. I'm just not getting one. And that's the expectation when you go in the hospital. So everything's fine. You can't be surprised if you already know you're not going to get ventilated, I guess. But maybe they can bust out some of the iron lungs and just have you on one of those. How sick would that be? <laughs> just me in an iron lung. Me podcasting from inside <laughs> of an iron lung. Yo, what up, MTV? Welcome to my iron Welcome lung. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> Welcome to my crib. It's an iron <laughs> lung. It's about yay oh, high. God. About yay wide. <laughs> Pimp my ride, but it's an iron lung. <laughs> Getting flames painted on the side. It's got a, it's, it's got a GameCube. <laughs> okay, I want a GameCube in my iron lungs. Just so you guys know, that's my, that's my living will right now. I want a GameCube in my iron lung. Well, I tell you, he doesn't get a, uh, an iron lung, and that's Poldy. <laughs> because he's dying, and it's at this point when the uh, Richard Widmark catches up with Jack Palance and Zero Mostel. And that leads to, uh, I guess, quite an unbelievable scene where they're transporting Poldy in the, on the stretcher up this very steep set of stairs, like back alley stairs. And Jack Palance is on one side and Richard Woodmark is on the other side. Got a bit of a tug of war thing going on with this very sick man. Bit of a tug of war thing. And eventually Jack Palance is like, you know what? Fuck this. <laughs> and just tosses Poldy like from the stairs onto the ground to try and like just like shoves him off. All right, hold out of the way, bud. We got a sick man. I'm a here. doctor. I want to take a look at it. Get our own doctor. Get out of the way. Isn't his name Poldy? Put him down. I want to see. Get out of the way. It's quite shocking. He gets he gets yeeted from like a second story banister. <laughs> just full. playing a clip of this scene is not going to do it justice. So I'm gonna like try to make a gif of it or something because people need to see. People need to see the truth. <laughs> yeah, it was quite shocking. I don't know. I mean, if he wasn't dead before, he's definitely dead now. <laughs> And um, Jack Palinson, Azuri Mostel, they like they run away from the scene and leave. Like I think it's Poldy's is it his mother or his his mother and his little brother, who we we should note is an important contributor to the origins of this podcast. The actor who plays Poldy's younger brother is the guy who wrote the original story for the George Siegel Timothy Bottoms disaster piece roller coaster from 1977. <laughs> I would say it was one of the formative films for our brand of humor. We owe so much to it. Yeah, and I'd like to thank him. I'd like to thank him from the bottom of my heart for his sacrifice. Thank you so much, Tommy Cook. So sorry your brother had to die that way. <laughs> um, anyway, so from this point on, it's like a, a chase through the like port, and they're like running over like 
I mean, for one, all of the running in this film, very strange. I don't know why no one in this film can run like a normal human, but at no point was anyone running normally. Even in the beginning scenes, there was someone like crouch running and they were like Jack Palance moves about like Lurch and Zero Mostel is out of breath every time he has to move out which is very <laughs> relatable to me yeah yeah what's happening here is Amelia is showing her jock privilege uh some of us can't fucking run so <laughs> some of us look like this when we run and that's just our burden to bear I mean I ran 5k today and did not throw up I did throw up last week when I did it but this week I didn't throw up so that's the amount of privilege I have I walked my dog today and I probably almost threw up a little bit. I was say Paul Douglas in this movie runs like he's got like a, a barrel around him and it's just his legs. <laughs> He's trying and he can't see out the barrel. Uh, it, it's 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 uncanny. It's his Diogenes cosplay. <laughs> That's a deep cut. That's a real deep cut. I don't think the cut of the trousers helps either because they're so formless, you know, by 1950 that it's kind of just like a whoosh, 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 with no no limbs underneath them. Just Are big you saying suit. that um, Zero Mostel would have? fared a little better if his character was dressed exclusively in skinny jeans this movie. <laughs> yes. I'm saying that Zero Mostel moves like David Byrne if he ate David Byrne. <laughs> He's like Sonic the Hedgehog just <laughs> weighed down by his pants. Zero Mostel is set, what a weird movie star. I mean just absolutely inexplicable. I, and there's also <laughs> there's also a really good scene where Jack Palance walks into the room and Zero Mostel is sitting there and Palance is like <laughs> What's that smell? I don't like that smell. And then Zero Mostel's like, oh, and he goes, are you using that hair tonic again? Because Zero Mostel's like balding. And he's like, no, no, I promise. I promised you I wouldn't put anything in my hair again. And it's just like such an odd. Like, I know they're trying to give up the idea that Jack Palance is like a control freak and manipulative, but instead it's just like sad. It's just really sad. <laughs> Zero Mostel can't even try and plump up him follicles, you know, without getting the third degree. He seems like a bit of a pushover to everyone like even in the beginning where he is in the police station and they're interviewing him trying to get information about whether he had contact with the infected man and he pulls out a cigar and it's like oh you know I'm trying to quit smoking and then he has his strike anywhere match and he tries to light it and then they're like don't smoke that in here and he immediately he's like oh, oh okay and <laughs> extinguishes the match and and he's like I got rights I'm a US citizen and then the cop is like petty larceny 1945 petty larceny 1947 you want me to keep going? He's like, no, no, it's it's good. It's good. It's all cool. <laughs> Which is like, it's weird to me because he's like planning to leave with Jack Palance. It's like, but he's so mean to you. Why? Why? You, the heart you wants what like... it wants. Selena Gomez. <laughs> MP3. Anyway, so this leads to this, yeah, this climax in the docks. And there's one part where Jack Palance and Zero Mostella are like, they're jumping over, like, sacks. They're in a coffee warehouse. Of, yeah, like, coffee. Yeah. And Richard Widmark, like, yells out to them, and it's like, you just need to stop, you know, blah, blah, blah. And in the background, a cat walks through set and just, like, stops and looks at what's going on. And that was the best part in the movie. <laughs> um, but then the chase kind of, like, keeps going until they end up underneath the pier, trying to get into this little boat. And that's sort of when Richard Widmark catches up with them and Zero Mustel gets shot in the ass. And Jack Palance, he's still struggling to get away. It says he's unable to pass a rat guard on the mooring line and falls into the water, which apparently is a thing that they had all around New Orleans 
um, these rat gods. Oh, is that like that, the metal disc that yeah. is on the, okay, on the rope so that he can't, and then he kind of, he, he drops down off the rope. I, I commented on it that he was climbing up the rope a little bit, like Bubbles the Chimpanzee, uh, Michael Jackson's yeah. chimp. And uh, he's climbing up the rope, and then he his progress is stopped by this kind of circular metal disc, and he... Uh, drops his legs and he tries to climb around it and he puts his arms up and of course he can't sustain that position pulling himself further up the line so then he just falls down into the water and um richard widmark is is like well job done <laughs> does his hands and is like well good job everybody oh, we fixed that one uh, i will just say that the the rat guards they were invented too late as millions of rats had already in- invaded the americas so i mean Nice try, but too slow. You know, actually, do you know where the probably most famous pneumonic plague epidemic is in American history? Los Angeles, 1924. Hollywood, baby. Bunch of people died. It was some bad shit. Infected rats were found in downtown Beverly Hills and the harbor. So uh, I can imagine it's, ni- it's 1924. You know, you're some big movie star. You're Francis X. Bushman or some shit. And you're <laughs> on there on your patio and you got your little you got your little velvet smoking jacket on, right? Because you're dressed like Todd, right? You got your little velvet smoking uh-huh, jacket on. Uh-huh. And, and, and you got your morning coffee and you got your pipe because you, you got one in each hand. And you also have the newspaper un- under your armpit. And you're just sitting there and then just a fucking plague rat just goes skittering across your front yard and... <laughs> <laughs> and then you scream, and because Francis X. Bushman would scream, and uh, then uh, Paul Douglas comes rolling by in a squad car and gets out and just blows the shit out of the rat on your front lawn. <laughs> That's how I envisioned that happening. So, little little little, little collision of timelines right there. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that visual. Yeah, it's nice to see that the coronavirus hasn't killed off your sense of humor. <laughs> Um, I guess now we need to talk about the final scene in this movie, which again, uh, just brings a lot more weirdness back into it. It brings back, it picks back up our favorite plot thread. Where Richard Widmarkey, like, comes home and he's like, oh, tough day at the office. Then (laughs) Tommy's friend, his son's friend, the 35 year old painter from God knows where, comes up and then just starts, like, chatting to him and, like, talking to him. like, I mean, haven't seen you talking to his son in a while. Maybe you should talk to him. He's a good kid. Yeah, he's like, Tommy told, Tommy tells me you haven't been around much lately. <laughs> hello there, doctor. Oh, hello there, Redfield. How are you? All right. Good. Say, Tommy tells me you haven't been around in a couple of days. You ought to spend some time with that boy. He's a great kid. Yeah, well, been kind of busy. Your own son comes first, you know. I'll get to work on it. Say, by the way, ought not leave this out either. Wood rot you. Thanks. And then also proceeds to like, because he points to what they were painting at the beginning of the movie and it's like, you gotta get that inside. Wood rots. And it's like, who asked you, buddy? Who are you? It marks like, keep your stupid comments in your pocket. But he's mostly mad that the guy is giving him parenting advice. It's like his biggest issue with it. Like, I'll raise my son any goddamn way I want to. Not like, what are you doing hanging out with my seven-year-old? Why are you on first name basis? Also, again, as we've established, he pulls up. So it's not like, you know, he's standing on the yard next door, like watering his plants or something. Like, the man just pulls up in a car both times we see him. So it's like, I know it's assumed you're supposed to like be like, oh, he lives across the street. But it doesn't play that way at all. You're just like, where is this man coming from? Is he driving into the neighborhood? 
college just just to see Tommy. You know, but then I floated the theory that Tommy was his real father and that Barbara Bel Geddes gets bored considering that Richard Widmark is out, you know, speaking Chinese with with random sailors every once in a while. <laughs> he spent a lot of time down at the docks looking for plague. He's done this in the past, apparently. Uh, but I also he could also be your friendly neighborhood sex predator. I'm not I'm not really sure. And yeah, that's that's the plot as convoluted as that was. I do have a couple of facts that I found out about the film that I can share. Number one, the film failed to recover its costs at the box office, which Daryl Zanuck blamed on the location shooting and said that it was far too expensive to be filming down on location. And that was what did it, not the fact that nobody went to go see it. Zanuck is one of those people who it's like, you'll make a movie, you know, like, I don't know, my first thought that came in terms of big Fox production would be something like Lloyd's of London, where they probably spent $850,000 on all the stupid wigs that Ty Power wears. And then it's like, it comes to location shooting. He's like, well, now this is just a little bit much, you know. But I think I think Xanax became cheaper as time went on. And you got to think, this is like 1950. Uh, it's not as, I guess, cost effective to be making all these big budget pictures and not getting any return on me. I don't think this is a big budget picture, but... Xanax, I, I think, is one of those people who harbored a lot of really big creative dreams as a young man. And then um, kind of saw that not all those gambles paid off. And his kind of sweet spot was he wanted, I think this is just my theory on Zanuck, he wanted every movie to be The Grapes of Wrath. Something that had great creative prestige, but something that could also be filmed on a dime locally, which is really <laughs> not like a winning uh, recipe. You know, there's, there's a reason why that formula doesn't always work out. But I think he didn't quite understand why Fox could not continuously churn out bangers the way that it had in the past. Because Anne is kind of a weird director for Fox because sometimes uh, he works under those constraints and sometimes he doesn't. He like focused on human tension, uh, the tension in human relationships. Sometimes his his perspective aligns with Xanax's credo in terms of filmmaking and sometimes it doesn't and I think he kind of has a weird relationship with Fox. He doesn't turn out maybe as many all-time classics as he would under another studio, uh, at least in the early period. I'm not talking about the like on the waterfront era exactly. I'm talking about earlier on. There are quite a few Kazan movies from that early period that really don't live up to um, his potential. Like, Viva Zapata, I think, is a terrible movie. I've always thought it's a terrible movie. I think Brando delivers maybe the worst performance of his career. I think Kazan and Zanuck had a very strange creative relationship, and I don't always enjoy what they did with it. I think some of those movies are well-intentioned, but not good. <laughs> I think you have something that takes a lot of half-steps, something like Gentleman's Agreement or Pinky. Kazan liked to make these wide-reaching political and social statements, but I don't think he always necessarily had the support that he needed from the studio to back them up. And also, as we've established, he was um, a weak bitch when it came to politics. So I don't think he had the personal acumen to back it up. Better off with Zanuck than you'd be with uh, with somebody like Louis B. Mayer. But uh, Zanuck was definitely not a hands-off type of studio head, as we've established. Zanuck probably ruined aspects of Panic in the Streets. Uh, It probably dulled a little bit of its potential. But I think that's also the other thing. I think Kazan is also trying to uh, expand his range in a way that's not necessarily conducive to the situation that he's in. He's trying to go for this vernacular film kind of style. You know, his attempts, his kind of stab at like, you know, neorealism at Cinema Verita. And it just doesn't, it doesn't necessarily work. Um, I, I actually found a really good criticism of this movie written by Gavin Lambert. Talk about somebody who could have probably written better movies than he ended up doing. But um, he, he makes the point that the kind of near art, which most above average contemporary production usually exemplifies is now familiar. He makes the point of uh, referencing Panic in the Streets and Crossfire. Such films, though they lack the intensity and revelation that 
comes from a really vital, untrammeled creative response to material are distinguished for their craftsmanship, their awareness of wide issues, their quality of observation. But because a film that reaches this level is comparatively rare today, it is always in danger of being overrated. And I think that's basically how I feel about Panic in the Streets. I can admire it, but um, I don't think that admiration goes anywhere beyond that. I find it technically very impressive, but it's flawed in a lot of ways. And I think Kazan, I don't know, I have such a weird love-hate relationship with Ilya Kazan. Mostly hate. I think... I think one of the things that I guess puts me off is like he was determined to have, you know, lesser stars in this. Um, also, um, lots of people from just casting call put out in on location. And like on some level, that's admirable to put lesser known stars and you don't need to rely on the star system, blah, blah, blah. But like on another level too, you're also lacking a lot of... Um, artistic ability uh, in those casting decisions that you've made. Sometimes you get Aurora performance and sometimes you don't, you know, and I, I don't know if Kazan really had the ability to draw that kind of performance that he needed to out of the performance performance that he got, um, which I think does a lot of damage to the film because you don't really find yourself relating to any characters in it yeah I guess you don't really feel anything for Woodmark and you don't really feel anything for Palance and you're just sort of there along for the ride and it's not emotional in any sense. Yeah and I think you could compare it to other um, kind of organized crime films of its era I'm gonna always compare something like this to The Big Combo and I think Lewis, Joseph H. Lewis in The Big Combo gets out a completely different range of performances. There's no uh empathy no compassion um i if people think of kazan as an actor's director and i guess he is in the most like literal sense but a lot of times i feel like actors are, are really misused in kazan movies for every andy griffith in face in the crowd or natalie wood in splendor in the grass he has like something really bloated and stupid something like sea of grass which is just probably the worst hepburn tracy picture he doesn't i think sometimes he gets a certain credit for performances that I think, quite frankly, would have been good no matter the director. You know, James Dean in East of Eden was always going to be James Dean in East of Eden. You could just put up a camera there and then put, like, a wacky, inflatable, waving arm tube man <laughs> there behind the camera, and James Dean would give the same performance. So I've never really, I don't know, I've never really been persuaded by Kazam. It's weird, and again, you know, there's the whole political issue. You know, I'm not a fan of his politics. I find his personal behaviors to be not my favorite. I've talked in the past on this podcast about how I find um, his rewriting of history regarding his his role in the New York theater scene and his subsequent undermining of some of the people he worked with back then in terms of the blacklist to be a little repulsive. But I, I can I can enjoy a movie like this, but at the same time, I'm enjoying this movie because like I like Richard Widmark, you know, and I think it's cool to see the New Orleans port at a really significant time in history. And I think it's interesting to see the ethnic diversity of New Orleans displayed on film. And again, and the cinematography is beautiful, but Ilya Kazan's not a cinematographer, so... <laughs> yeah, I think this, this film is interesting in the elements that are interesting are despite Kazan, um, not because of him. Um, I will say something that would have made it much more interesting for all of us is that um, according to an article that came out the year before this was made uh, Dana Andrews and Linda Darnell were originally cast in this film <laughs> oh my god imagine <laughs> the Bel Geddes part assuming that would be the Darnell part must have been larger initially because also when you look at the, at the notes regarding the production code there are characters referenced in, in the notes from the original draft of the script that don't appear in the film yeah I think that it was uh, throttled yeah. by the code mm-hmm. that 
that it needed to be changed quite a lot. It was originally called a port of entry. There were changes noted for what needed to be changed for it to pass the code. And there's a character called Violet who must not be suggestive of a um, sex worker. We assume there will be no suggestion that a police officer is killed. The scene of Martinez and the mattress falling should not be too realistically gruesome, which I think it was actually realistically gruesome because I believe that's the poly scene. So obviously there are a lot more characters and a lot more going on before this point. So I reckon it was when the changes got made that they kind of pulled out. But this was the film debut for Jack Palance. And there's some trivia here that's frankly a little bit disturbing about Jack Palance. (laughs) Richard Widmark said that Jack Palance was the toughest guy I ever met. He was the only actor I've ever been physically afraid of. He also said in the scene where Palance hits Widmark on the head with a gun, the actors rehearsed it with a rubber gun. But when the cameras rolled, Palance substituted a real gun. Widmark, who wasn't expecting it, was out for 20 minutes. And then Widmark said, Whitey Switch, who knows? And then in a 1986 interview, Widmark also recalled how Palance got into the mood of his character by beating on flunky Zero Mostel off screen. A black and blue Mostel had to go to the hospital after his first week on the movie. They had to soak him in Epsom pads. So that's pretty fucking full on. Do you think he pulled this act on the set of City Slickers? I mean, I wish. Oh my god, just fucking cold cocking Billy Crystal repeatedly. Yeah. <gasps> Palance is such a weird actor. I talk about like one of the true originals of the screen. I don't think there's ever been anyone quite like him. Everything about him, his bearing, his visage, he's got one of the strangest faces. You know, he's got a perfect film noir face, you know, the, the peaks and valleys, you know, the way it traps light. Everything about him is fascinating. But he also is just the lurch comparison that you made earlier, um, the fact <laughs> (laughs) that, you know, then he ends up kind of rip-roaring into his film career by playing Jack the Ripper. Like, everything about about him is just such a such an odd we're, we're hitting that great era of the the anti-movie star movie star and I think he's an early example of that along with, with types like a Widmark and what later is going to develop you know with the whole Brando James Dean bullshit that this is a real man this is a tough man kind of a reaction to the the dandified movie star that backlash against that that longing for real masculinity which I think is a partially like a post-war thing and partially coming from the influx of movie people who are coming from the American stage maybe who or preferring something a little bit more raw, something a little bit more real. But Pounds and Widmark is just like, wow, two fucking weirdos in one room. Well, there is a um a little bit, bit of a, I guess, interlude here. But when he accepted his Academy Award for his role in City Slickers, he stepped on stage to accept the award and looked down at the host, who was Billy Crystal, and joked, mimicking one of his lines in the film, Billy Crystal. God, I crap bigger than him. I was so excited for him with some bit of pleasure for myself and having helped that happen. But again, fate. First movie I ever saw, acting with him, Oscar he wins, I'm hosting. This is crazy. And he comes up on stage and, sa- and takes a line from the movie and says it to the audience, it's Billy Crystal, I crap bigger than him. Now, people didn't know that was a line from the movie. And I thought, what's he, what's he making fun of Bill? I, we like him. What was he doing? Up? And then he starts talking about being a certain age. You do something, you know, you, you think you're, they're done, you know, but you can you do this. Then he hits the ground. He does these one-arm push-ups. And it's, 
he even mutters, this is, uh, be more fun if there's a hooker underneath here. I mean, it, it, the censor went, nah, it can't be out in the air. That's going to be good. Thank you. He then dropped to the floor and demonstrated his ability at age 73 to perform one-arm push-ups. Um, <laughs> You're just mad because you would do that. <laughs> I found a really good Palance thing because one thing I've always found really interesting about Palance is the way he speaks. The The best comparison I, I can come up with is that he hums when he talks like when you're a kid and you take wax paper and you put it around a comb and you blow. That's what I've always thought Jack Palance <laughs> sounded like. And so I was kind of like looking to see what take other people had on that. And Tim Lucas, um, who is a is a film historian, uh, <laughs> he describes it as the way dialogue burbled from his lips like wine expressed from swollen grapes, which I think is really beautiful. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and very true. It burble, I think it's a great verb for that. But I, I've always, it's a very, very strange, and I, I don't, I don't know what it is about him. I'm not a speech language pathologist, so I don't know why he talks like that. But uh, I enjoy it. Richard Widmark also talks weird. So does Barbara Bel Geddes. And I think no one in this movie has a normal speaking voice, except for maybe Paul Douglas. And even then, he should have a southern accent. So. <laughs> Shut up. Do you know who Paul Douglas was originally supposed to be? What famous character he was originally supposed to be, but then he dropped dead? He was supposed to be Sheldrake. He was supposed to be Fred McMurray's Sheldrake in the apartment. And really? And he dropped dead. And then Wilder had to be like, hmm, who else do I know? Flipping through his Rolodex. Like, I must know somebody else. And then I guess he was just like... Fred McMurray. And if, so Fred McMurray plays Sheldrake, a horrible man, and then he's like, you know what? I think I'm gonna go make Flubber now. I'm trying to imagine that. I don't... Okay. I don't think that would have worked. I don't think it would have worked either, but I just had a really good idea, okay? Oh, God. Okay, so, you know when you have um, a pulmonary illness, right? And and you're coughing up the junk, right? Okay? And it's, uh-huh. it's, it's nasty. It's phlegmy. Okay? Where is this going? <laughs> the, 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 the plague... That's flubber. Flubber is the plague sputum in mass, and it's some sort of bioweapon. Uh-huh. It's uh, taken from Panic in the Streets, and it's just, it's 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 an homage, really. I don't know where I'm going. I think I might be dying of coronavirus, but I thought that was a really funny image of the flubber <laughs> just being what all these people are going to cough up out of their lungs as they're dying in the movie Panic in the Streets, 1950. I wish my internet went out so I didn't go through that whole thing right now. <laughs> Robert Murray should have been in this movie. Who would he have been? Would he have been the one that got flung from the stairs? He would have been Poldy's mother with her little her little babushka <laughs> uh, little head wrap, and uh, he would have worn a little black shawl and carrying a rosary. That would have been him. He's just crouched over, like at the beginning of the movie when Jack Palance is running when they're about to uh, shoot uh, what's his name, and then and then fling him out into the into the into the port. That's uh, that's Robert Murray playing this role. <laughs> Anybody else have any thoughts on my Fred Murray fantasies? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the coffee in this movie, I found interesting because, uh, coffee is, is a uh, very important import in the history of New Orleans. It's a staple for the New Orleans ports. I think today New Orleans is still the major port of entry for coffee in the United States. And at one point they're like half a million dollars in coffee is in that warehouse. But anyway, the other day I was reading about what implications coronavirus might have for the importation of, of certain goods and somebody was like like 60 percent of u.s coffee comes to the port of new orleans new orleans now is 
considering maybe some sort of quarantine effort to contain the spread of coronavirus because people in New Orleans got the Rona. And uh, that could cut off, uh, choke off coffee supply for the United States. So that's a bleak vision of our future. You know how many people would kill their whole families? if they couldn't acquire coffee <laughs> during this whole epidemic. Look, we've seen people nearly kill each other over fucking toilet paper. At this point, I'm surprised at nothing. Like, I would think I would think it would, like, be a few days after supply chains dried up for people to turn to this, but no, already. We've still got fucking food, and people are already killing each other over fucking toilet paper. So, I mean, I would be surprised My mom said there was, like, a Facebook post or something where Cottonelle was like, we're going to be donating toilet paper to the UN, and people were like, why where's the sell it where's the toilet paper in the stores cotton hell but my mom also knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who works at a toilet paper factory in oregon and she said they've been working like 70 hour weeks to give the people their toilet paper and so nothing but respect for my president the toilet paper crafters the craftsmen who produce our toilet paper the artisans responsible for our toilet paper they are the true first responders in this epidemic well pandemic did you say craftsmen or craftsmen uh Fuck. Okay, can we can we just say real fast that um, I didn't listen to the new Bob Dylan song because Bob Dylan hasn't done anything good since that movie tie-in music video for Wonder Boys where he like superimposes himself into the footage of <laughs> Michael Douglas and Tobey Maguire having coffee in that diner. So whatever. <laughs> but um, he released this 17-minute epic about the JFK assassination and like conspiracy oh, theories about like the guys in the, the Zapruder film and stuff. And um, I guess on Frosty, Heidi, and Frank, which is an American radio show, again, I didn't listen to this and I don't give a shit, but whatever, I thought it was a funny story. Uh, Heidi and, and Frank were talking about it, and Frank was, like, making up fake lyrics to the song, like, you're going down to Dallas, and she's wearing a pillbox hat, and then they play the song, and that's exactly what it sounds like. Because Dylan lyrics are all self-parody, you know, like, you're driving in the Lincoln, and you <laughs> get a bullet in your neck. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, Bob Dylan is like 300 years old okay, at this look, point. Bob Dylan so, should I mean... stop making music around blood on the tracks. That was it. He should have just stopped. He should have just given in. Bob Dylan's expiration date was about 250 years ago. Like a jar of mayonnaise at this point. I don't want to sniff it. I don't want to see it in my fridge. That's my attitude towards Bob Dylan's 17-minute epic on the Kennedy assassination. When will somebody make a 17-minute epic about the RFK assassination? It's a much more interesting assassination. You gotta be the change. That's that's our next episode. It's gonna be me <laughs> performing an original song. And there will be a music video of me green screened in with some tigers and... I'll have a mullet <laughs> and I'll have a fringe leather jacket with little uh, metal nipples on them. And the song will be called I Saw a Sahan Sahan. Is Palestinian Liberation the Ambassador Hotel? <laughs> you in the China Closet <laughs> and you turn around oh hell. And then <laughs> it's just, You know what this sounds like? This sounds like a mystic spiral song from Daria. Like Trent singing is what it sounds like. <laughs> Look, I, I have many influences. Anyway, <laughs> fuck, that has nothing to do with this episode, but I just thought that was so funny. Like, Bob Dylan just emerges from his cave. Truly <laughs> 17-minute song about the Kennedy assassination. Well, maybe it's because um, last podcast on the left are doing, like, a huge series on JFK assassination for their 400. Does Bob consume pods? Bob, why don't you give a, a shout-out? Write a 17-minute epic about our podcast yeah. specifically. We'll be a good one. Uh... Lou Ayers is trapped in a marriage with a fascist, and he's got male pattern baldness, and he's starting to get a little fat, and then 
they drop the bombs down in Oahu, and he doesn't want to go. <laughs> okay, so I, I can't. Oh my god. I don't even know. We're even even podcast. That's just about Louis. Louis <laughs> is the podcast, okay? He's present in every single episode. We have him via seance. He interjects. We just don't read what he says. Oh, I love Louis. <laughs> I wish Louis was in this movie. I wish Louis was that floozy who gets a hundred dollars from jack palance i'm assuming that was like violet the character that was referred to in the draft that didn't end up because she's unnamed but um would have been better if it was Luares, just like balding pudgy 1950 Luares, looking like calvin coolidge uh what else happens in this movie um not much there's not many films in this era that are set in the south because the south naturally has like Ah, certain divisive elements of the production code kind of stayed away from after you have like the spate of like plantation set movies in the late 30s the south isn't a a particularly um common setting a lot of times they would prefer to use kind of the near south kind of like where it broaches out into the midwest you'll get something that's more set in the middle west especially in westerns they don't want to really refer to southern issues because any less than flattering depiction of the south and its social circumstances would obviously be a little bit of a drain at the box office and uh i think it's a really interesting depiction of new orleans i think it's a fairly balanced depiction of new orleans I think it captures elements of New Orleans at this point in time, but with a really, I'm contradicting myself earlier because I felt like it wasn't a particularly empathetic film from Kazan, but it captures a lot of the poverty and the degradation of the city. I mean, it does that, but it like also completely ignores um, African-Americans. Yeah, you see them in passing. Like there's like one, I think there's one speaking role from a black actor who's again, is probably not even an actor. It's probably one of the many New Orleans locals that Kazan used for the film. But it is still interesting to, to see that element of it and I think that happens in part because ethnicity and race really play no role in the movie weirdly enough I mean the, the character who s- sets the whole story into motion is Armenian and he's referred you know as a, a foreigner and a stranger and everything but it's never ever really referenced again the only kind of thing you get there is the Greek restaurant and then maybe being afraid of tangling with the police but that's it that's all you really get but again as I was going to say my whole understanding of New Orleans on film comes from Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island so I don't have a particularly <laughs> nuanced <laughs> understanding of how the whole thing works. And I think Jezebel is set in Louisiana, but that's about it. There's not many movies that's set in Louisiana at this point in time. And then there's also um, one of the worst movies I think ever made, uh, The Pelican Brief with Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts, which has the single, maybe the worst cinematography of any major Hollywood film in history. It looks like it was shot on Betamax by an eighth grader. I was gonna uh, say that my grandmother, Richard Widmark, to her, was like the sexiest movie star. And you know what scene it was? It's not in this movie. But you know what classic Richard Widmark cinematic moment just sent her heart a-pounding? It's the scene in Kiss of Death where he pushes a wheelchair-bound woman down a flight of stairs and she dies. <laughs> he kills an old lady. And my grandma, in 1947, was like, hmm. Don't let her watch Mac and Me. <laughs> So this woman, who just found such a thrill when Richard Widmark, Mac and me, an old lady, is the one who is now praying the rosary on a daily basis because she's so afraid of the coronavirus. So I think that gives you an idea of her risk tolerance, and therefore everybody should be very afraid. She's a survivor of scarlet fever. Her home was quarantined during one of the many scarlet fever epidemics in American history. And like when they would like put the X on your door 
like everyone inside could die kind of a deal you know like do like an exodus fucking hell with the lamb's blood over the fucking the door. whole thing yeah and she <laughs> is worried about the coronavirus so jesus I, christ i mean it's in times like these that we could really use richard widmark running around just fucking inoculating everyone he meets with his one hypodermic needle when richard widmark is returning home um, I think after he gets the weird dressing down from the strange neighborhood man about how he doesn't spend enough time playing catch with his child, uh, Barbara Bel Geddes has the radio on and it's like, oh, everything's been, everyone who was in contact with the man has been successfully inoculated. Threat of plague averted. In a wild chase during which one man was killed and the other captured. As a result, Dr. Mackey of the Board of Health has been able to issue a bulletin that all contacts have been found and inoculated. Sounds like Mackey's got things under control. He's a good man. Turn it off. And it's it's, it's a movie that is really centered upon the idea that rapid, strategic government response can curb the threat of a pandemic, coincidentally as it did in that 1924 Los Angeles epidemic that I brought up earlier, because the government has a moral liability to act and that you should trust government figures because uh, they are trying their best. They're Richard Widmark, you know, they, they have a certain capability. And I wish that Richard Widmark was the president of the United States right now, but he's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would have been nice if any of our countries had had a um, prompt and appropriate response to the current pandemic and done more to actually curb it when it first eventuated. Uh, we had the opportunity to close our borders as soon as we knew that it was a thing and we didn't. So, I mean, now we're doing this and who knows when we'll see the end of it. But um, loyal listeners, can be assured of is that we'll have plenty of time to podcast and if this continues you'll see many more pandemic uh films being reviewed (laughs) on this podcast (laughs) because you know what do you do you turn a crisis into an opportunity isn't that right so that's what we're going to do here on what's in the basket podcast i guess shall we give it a rating how many fat phobic comments would you give this out of 10, Candace. I would give this 6.5 out of 10 fat phobic comments, which I think is the average of how many times per scene uh, Jack Palance verbally berates Zero Mostel for being physically repulsive. Todd, how many levels of Rosetta Stone Chinese would you give this film out of 10? I think I'd also go with about a 6.5. Not not a great film, but an interesting film. Uh, Amelia, how many hypodermic needles in Richard Widmark's pocket would you give this film? I would give this uh, five hypodermic needles in Richard Widmark's pocket out of 10, but they're very easily broken, so just careful with that. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Um, I hope you're all doing okay out there. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Or wherever you listen to this podcast really would be great. Uh, Please tell your friends about this podcast. Now you're all in isolation and have nothing to do. Definitely time to be listening to this podcast. (laughs) And we are going to try to uh, make a turn back to like actual researched episodes it's been kind of a dry spell but obviously now we can't go anywhere or do anything so i mean it's not like we were going out and doing things before uh no we were just like (laughs) harried by our own fucking mental demons so but yeah thank you all for listening uh again send good comments send bad comments it's all interesting so do what you will uh you can keep up 
with us on um, social media at BasketPod on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, stay um, sane and safe. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Bye. 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 <laughs>